2: This is
3: Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state.
3: The phone call between former President Donald Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, seems to be the centerpiece of the criminal investigation in Georgia into whether Trump and others broke the law by trying to pressure state officials into throwing out Joe Biden's presidential election victory. And now Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has gotten a court's permission to convene a special grand jury in the investigation. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner with Carter and English. Bob, why did the prosecutor request
2: a special grand jury? The Fulton County District Attorney made that request because she said that key witnesses in the investigation, including, for example, the Georgia Secretary of State, would not cooperate without being subpoenaed to testify. So the special grand jury was created to give her the power to bring these individuals before the grand jury. Interestingly, the special grand jury gives her the power to have a grand jury whose sole focus is this investigation, and they're able to meet on a more regular basis basis and will move this investigation along at a much quicker pace.
3: Of course, the big question is whether Trump's attempts to reverse the outcome in Georgia were criminal. What will the prosecutor be looking at?
2: The phone County district attorney is going to look at Certain key events that occurred on January 2, 2021. Specifically, at 3 p.m. on Saturday, there was a phone call which was recorded between President Trump and the Secretary of State, in which prosecutors may allege that President Trump tried to push and coerce the, this the Secretary of State into counting Georgia's presidential votes in a way that favored President Trump. Specifically, the language in the phone call includes President Trump stating to the Secretary of State, I think it's pretty clear that we won. We won very substantially in Georgia. And then the president, according to the tape, went on to say, it's more illegal for you than it is for them, because you know what they did, and you're not reporting it. That's a criminal offense, and you can't let that happen. And then he says, what is probably the key in that phone call, the key words in that telephone call, all I want to do is this. I want to find 11,780 votes, which is more than we have because we won the state. That's going to be the key fact in that investigation. And prosecutors will try to prove that what the president was doing was threatening the Secretary of State, that if he did not yield to that request, that he himself could face criminal charges. That is what the case will be about. The particular statutes that the prosecutor in Georgia will be looking at are two, criminal solicitation to commit election fraud and conspiracy to commit election fraud. Georgia's conspiracy to commit election fraud statute makes it a crime when one conspires or agrees with another to violate Georgia's election laws. And what's important here is that that crime, as with any conspiracy law, is complete when there's an agreement to violate the law and one overt act is taken in furtherance of that conspiracy. But it is not necessary to prove that the conspiracy was consummated. In other words, the scheme does not have to succeed to be criminal. The second statute that prosecutors will be looking at is the Georgia. Criminal solicitation statute. That makes it a crime when a person commits the offense of criminal solicitation to commit election fraud when, with that intent, another person engages in conduct that constitutes a felony. Here, the underlying felony would essentially be tampering with the election results. And what prosecutors would have to show was that Trump was demanding that the Secretary of State alter the final vote tallies so that it would appear that he won the election when, in fact, he did not.
3: As far as the criminal solicitation charge, does it seem as if the phone call would almost be enough?
2: That's a great question. It does seem like the phone call is quite damning. But when you look closely at the words that were spoken, it is not nearly as clear cut as it first appears. The key language in that phone call is when President Trump allegedly said to the secretary of state, All I want to do is this, I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have because we won the state. The key to this prosecution is that the state will have to show that President Trump knew, in fact, that he lost the election and that he was asking the secretary of state to, quote, unquote, find votes that did not exist. It would be a defense to this criminal case if President Trump could show that he actually believed he won the state of Georgia, even if it turns out that that's not incorrect. But if all he was asking the secretary of state to do was to find real votes, was to locate votes that actually were made legally for him that put him over the top in Georgia, that actually would be a defense to these criminal charges. So the entire case turns on the intent of the president. Did he ask the Secretary of State to find votes that didn't exist, knowing that he, in fact, had lost the election? Or did he have a real genuine belief that he won the election and that he was simply asking the Secretary of State to find actual votes in order to validate what he already believed, that he in fact won the election.
3: So now it seems as if the conspiracy to commit election fraud would be even more difficult. Who would be in on the conspiracy? Would it be the people on the phone with Trump except for Raffensburg?
2: So when the president made that call to the secretary of state, there were others on the line, including a team of election law lawyers representing the president. If the prosecutors could prove that the president conspired with any single one of those individuals, then there was an agreement to perform an illegal act. And as long as one step was taken in furtherance of that conspiracy, that step would be the phone call to the secretary of state to try to convince him to overturn the election. That would be what prosecutors would have to prove in order to make those charges stick.
3: We all know the old saying. I think it came from a one-time court of appeals judge that, a prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. So does it seem as if this prosecutor could bring charges if she wants to? But does the prosecutor consider whether or not can actually get a conviction?
2: Sure, what goes on in the grand jury is that prosecutors have to show that there is probable cause that a crime has been committed and that the individual named in the indictment has committed that crime. That's the lowest standard we have in our criminal justice system. There's probable cause in order to get the indictment, however, in order to get the conviction, it's, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest legal standard we have in our legal system. And uh, While it's relatively easy for prosecutors to get an indictment because of the lower criminal standard and because, in front of the grand jury, the grand jurors only hear the prosecutor's side of the case. In other words, they only hear the evidence to support it finding a probable cause. They don't hear the defense side of the case. It's relatively easy to get an indictment, but a prosecutor never wants to get an indictment that they don't believe they can ultimately prove in court, and particularly in a case like this that would be enormously high profile with the stakes enormously high. I don't think we're going to see the prosecutor pursue this Case, unless she believes that she can ultimately get a conviction if this case were to go to trial.
3: It seems that most people looking at all the possible criminal cases against Trump see the Georgia case as the most direct and having the most possibilities for conviction. Do you agree with that?
2: Well, it is the most clear-cut case in the sense that the facts are not particularly complicated. It also has the virtue from the prosecutor's side of the case of having an actual tape of President Trump speaking to the Secretary of State. So, in other words, prosecutors would argue that there is an actual recording of the crime in real time. They would have to stand up before, before jurors and convince them that the president in that conversation, in that recorded conversation, was attempting to get the Secretary of State to find non-existent votes, and that President Trump knew at the time that he had lost the election and was seeking to have it overturned by asking the Secretary of State to intervene and to tamper with the results of that election.
3: Let's turn now to New York. And of course, there are parallel investigations by the New York Attorney General and the Manhattan. The Attorney General is fighting to get testimony from the eldest Trump children. And so she released a 157-page court document. What did you see that struck you there?
2: What's important to note here is that the New York attorney general filed a motion to compel the former president, along with his son, Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump, to hand over documents and answer questions about the series of valuations of key properties, part of the New York-based Trump organization empire. That was met with a motion to quash from the Trump team, and that resulted in this filing by the New York attorney general in which she detailed a lot of the evidence that they had already gathered in this investigation. But it's important to note that the attorney general's investigation in New York is a civil case, which means nobody's going to jail as a result of that investigation. All that can result there is that there will be an imposition of a fine at the end of that case.
3: So the attorney general claims that Trump's financial filings have misstated objective facts, that the Trump organization used fraudulent or misleading asset valuations to obtain a host of economic benefits, including loans, insurance coverage, and tax deductions. She's been investigating since 2019. Is the problem how hard it is to convict someone of fraud in a case like
2: this? Sure. Well, in a civil case, the standard of proof is merely preponderance of the evidence. So unlike the criminal case that's going on with the Manhattan district attorney's office or the criminal case that's going on in Georgia, the Attorney General in New York only has to prove the case by a preponderance of the evidence, which means slightly more than 50%. But there's still difficulties even in proving that case. For one thing, it's a complicated financial fraud case, and it's difficult to prove criminal intent unless the documents are crystal clear that there was an intent to mislead and defraud, and unless you have someone on the inside, a co-conspirator, who can take jurors by the hand through all these complicated documents and show them that, in fact, there was criminal intent here. There was knowledge that what was being done was wrong. There was knowledge that the information that was being filed was false. They don't have that here in terms of a cooperator, as far as we know. And the documents themselves are complicated. They're complicated financial documents that also have the added difficulty of having been reviewed and approved by attorneys. So one of the defenses that the Trump organization can raise is that they relied in good faith on professional advice, that these documents were reviewed by lawyers and by accountants. And even if ultimately they were wrong, They relied in good faith on those professionals, and therefore, they're not guilty of committing that offense. Another challenge for the New York Attorney General's Office investigation is that she is trying to prove objectively that these valuations were incorrect. So she's trying to find discrepancies in all these financial filings and show that at one time and for one purpose, a certain property was valued at X, and that the same property at another time for another purpose was valued at Y. These are objective discrepancies in the valuations, and she's trying to use that to show that they had to know that these valuations were not correct and that they were being manipulated for various purposes in order to obtain economic advantages for the Trump organization. But even that argument can be challenging because it is perfectly permissible to value different properties at different amounts based upon the context that the valuation is being done. So the rules may differ if the valuation is being done, for example, for a mortgage or a loan application as opposed to, to some other circumstance. So even the discrepancies alone may not be enough to prove that there was an intent to defraud here. Those are additional challenges that the New York Attorney General will have to overcome if she's ultimately going to bring a case of fraud against President Trump or anybody else in the Trump organization.
3: Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter in English.
4: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: Gun violence is on the rise in Manhattan. Last Friday, two police officers were shot and killed in Harlem. There have been 13 shootings in Manhattan so far this year, compared to seven during the same period in 2021, according to New York Police Department statistics. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who's been under pressure over a memo he issued for swearing prosecutions of certain crimes, said addressing gun violence will be a top priority for his office. Joining me is Bloomberg Legal Reporter Patricia Hurtado. Pat, tell us about this memo from Bragg that has gotten so much attention.
5: Well, it was a law enforcement memo to his staff prosecutors. They're called assistant district attorneys. And this was a memo that laid out how they were going to pursue certain crimes and not seek uh, certain penalties automatically, you know, not pursue fair beating cases or sex worker cases, like aggravated unlicensed operation of a motor vehicle can only be charged if a motorist is also accused of being involved in a dangerous driving or crashes that injures someone. It can't be used against people who don't pay their fines. People who burglarize apartments or buildings or basements of a commercial building or an apartment would face burglary charges, but they would carry lesser punishments. That cautioned that don't automatically seek to have someone incarcerated when they get arrested, you know, that only pursue those kinds of cases. There's an imminent threat of harm resisting arrest could only be charged if the person is arresting for a serious crime, not just standing around when the cops are telling them to move. And Bragg's theories apparently behind us were that he wanted to stop police from basically arresting Black and Latinx and minorities that are targeted typically under these kinds of cases. What has happened, though, is There's been a lot of interpretation of the memo. This memo that was basically sort of suggesting a little more leniency or giving the prosecutors more discretion and don't automatically charge everything that gets arrested and make it a felony was basically came at a time right head up into an increase in crime. There has been a spike in recent violent crimes, including shootings and gun violence. So this policy day one memo came head on into shootings and the pushing of the woman, Michelle Go, an uh, office worker who was shoved to her death in front of an oncoming subway car in Manhattan. And there was a girl fatally shot. She was a Burger King worker. She was fatally shot at uh, by a robbery at the, at the Burger King. So these kinds of crimes, of course, are getting a lot of headlines, and Bragg's policies seem to have collided head on with this spike.
3: I mean, the New York police commissioner, the first black woman to hold that job, criticized his policies. There were even starting to be calls for removing him from office. Yes,
5: and uh, Tom Swasey, who's running for governor, Republican, he has called upon uh, Kathy Hochul to remove Bragg, and she apparently has the power to do so, and she's running for a re-election after she was appointed to replace Andrew Cuomo, so she's having to deal with this issue where she's being asked to review Bragg and possibly remove him. So she's going to be meeting with him. Uh, it's been reported. So, you know, it's a lot happening in three weeks where you have a new police commissioner And then you have a new mayor who is a former cop who's dealing with this spike in crime citywide. Mayor uh, Adams has given uh, his support and says that he thinks that Bragg is a brilliant prosecutor. But, you know, there was something interesting I covered yesterday. There was a conference with uh, the New York State Bar Association with four district attorneys around the state, including uh, the Erie County DA, Flynn as well as Mimi Roca of Westchester, D.A., and uh, Eric Gonzalez, the Brooklyn D.A. And it was interesting because some of them have accomplished kinds of progressive policies, ameliorating, you know, the harm that incarceration does to youth. They were talking about different policies they've instituted. So, for example... Alvin Bragg gets a lot of attention yesterday for announcing that he was going to have like a gun czar, a prosecutor to handle gun cases. And Eric Gonzalez did that last August and no one said anything, (laughs) you know. And Eric Gonzalez was talking about policies that he's enacted because there was such a rise in crime when he took over when Ken Thompson died in 2016 and then ran for DA in 2017. And he said he was managed with some policies. They've been focused on certain crimes, certain recidivist felons who have violent backgrounds. They basically focused on certain gang cases and made these cases against, he said, the ones that pull the triggers. And they've been actually able to bring down crime. And there's been a 40 percent reduction in crime in Brooklyn. And the D.A. in uh, Erie County was talking about certain alternatives to incarceration cases where they take young uh, people who have possibly been involved in a shooting. They may have been victims. They were not the defendant, the person who was arrested for the gun possession. But they target them and work with them to get them out of the system. So they will take them out and, you know, it could be that this kid was the victim of a shooting and may go get a gun. And with this program, they intervene with the kids and get them out of the system.
3: It seems like in some interviews I've seen that Bragg has backed off a little on that memo or tried to. Yeah. He has given uh,
5: it was a two-hour seminar last week at NYU Law School. And uh, where he's an adjunct, and he was asked by a law professor at NYU Law School that's a you know former federal prosecutor in the Southern District that used to work with him, and he has spoken that you know he was misinterpreted and that it was a problem. He received criticism from the his memo, his day one memo. It was a failure to communicate properly what the memo was really about. And he said he called it maybe too legalistic and confusing to to the public. Some people have said that was the problem or perhaps, you know, it was a little inartfully done. Other people have have not had this issue in the first three
3: weeks of work. And also, didn't uh, at least nine Manhattan prosecutors quit after he took over?
5: Well, I mean, one theory, uh, we had a Bloomberg uh, meeting with him on Friday of last week, an Ed Board meeting. And, you know, he said, insisted that some of those nine that were counted, that top people that quit, included the D.A. himself, uh, Cy Vance, who was obviously going to leave. And he said it's always when there's a change in regime happens, there will be a change in the top management. And he said the same thing had happened when he was in the New York attorney general's office. All the top managers had left. However, one of the key people that the Manhattan D.A.'s office lost is a spectacular prosecutor. She's a veteran, and she's a fierce, fierce trial prosecutor. Um, Her name is Jonah Lucey, and she prosecuted Harvey Weinstein. So now they've lost her, and the Court of Appeals was uh, voicing some criticism of the way the case was handled uh, in the use of these witnesses that are not direct victims, but they're kind of outcry witnesses. So the if the court appeals court reverses the conviction of Harvey Weinstein, now one of the most senior people in the office who's been there for like, I've covered cases with her for like 25 years, you know, she's no longer there. He would not answer what they would do. He said there's many talented staffers that can that can handle the
3: prosecution so what does he say he's going to focus on
5: well he wants to do a lot of things he wants to focus on gun violence he wants to focus on um you know lowering uh you know the number of youth and black and latinx people who get arrested uh that he thinks they've been wrongfully targeted for law enforcement and put a little more parody into the, into the system, the criminal justice system. But it's a lot on his plate right quickly in the middle of what many people perceive as a crime wave. And, you know, he's gotten, there's been some criticism. In fact, you know, there's been stories. I think people see if you go to the Duane Re- Reed or a local drugstore, you can't buy anything on the shelves, including toothpaste, mm. because of, you know, people are shop, brazen shoplifters. And so if that's happening in a Manhattan store and then you read a memo that says, hey, let's not arrest everyone, let's think about maybe an alternative to this process, criminal justice system process, you can see people getting a little frustrated that, you know, they're worried about getting mugged or some people say that it's not necessarily as bad and certain crimes are not as bad as it was in the 1980s and 90s during the crack epidemic.
3: But it's not good. What about the prosecution of Trump, which he inherited from Sy Vance, the former DA?
5: That was an interesting question. My colleague aggressively questioned him on that, and he will not say. He will not talk about it. And I guess we have to understand that there is a, a grand jury involved in this investigation, and prosecutors are prohibited from discussing grand jury matters. But uh, he has said repeatedly that he has this expertise when he was on the campaign, that he had these, this expertise in, as in the New York Attorney General's office prosecuting Trump Organization and Trump University. So these are the kinds of background cases that he has. So he has the wherewithal and the skill. He's also kept the same people in place that were doing the prosecution under his predecessor, Cy Vance.
3: And what's his relationship now with the New York Police Commissioner?
5: When there was this acrimony between the police commissioner who was reacting to this memo, she, she had sent out, the police commissioner sent out a memo to her, 36,000 members of the force saying, you know, that we need to be careful about this. And I think Bragg realized that he had to have some meeting with the police department because the two are partners in this process. And so they had uh, so the police commissioner Keechan uh, uh met with Bragg a um, week ago, Friday now. So it's two weeks now after that rocky week to agree that they were going to work together in a more collaborative fashion. So, I mean, I guess this is all a learning process. We haven't had a new Manhattan DA, I mean, Cy Dance with for 11 years and, Bob Morgenthau was for 30 some years. So in 40 some years, you know, this is the fourth district attorney. So uh, I guess it's a learning experience for everybody involved.
3: Thanks, Pat. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Patricia Hurtado. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.